All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a special guest, Professor Ian Greenhouse. Uh, Professor Greenhouse is an assistant professor at the University of Oregon. His research examines how humans initiate and cancel movement. His lab combines behavioral testing with electrophysiology, neuroimaging, and brain stimulation in healthy and clinical populations. His current research explores the relationship between the inhibitory neurochemical gamma-aminobutyric acid, in other words, GABA, and motor performance. Uh, Dr. Greenhouse earned his BA in psychology at Tufts University and his PhD at the University of California in San Diego. He completed postdoctoral training at the University of California, Berkeley, and joined the Department of Human Physiology at the University of Oregon in the fall of 2017. Uh, Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Toby. Absolutely. So um, I think it'd be interesting to just hear what your, what your lab is uh, currently, or I guess prior to um, COVID hitting, um, what, uh, what was the, the main kind of research uh, focus or research projects going on with your lab? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I guess first I'll, I'll kind of illustrate the type of questions that we're studying with a thought experiment or, you know, experiment you can do at home, very quick one. So go ahead and, and think about moving your left index finger without moving it. So just think about moving your left index finger and now actually move it. So think about it and then actually do it. So what's right. different between those two conditions? You know, what's going on in the nervous system? What actually determines this transition from just thinking about an action to actually executing the action? And this is one of the questions that we really dig into in, in the lab. And this is interesting because, um, you know, it has a philosophical element to it that we think is really fun and, and exciting. You know, this whole idea of free will and this type of stuff weaves in there a little bit. But really from a more physiological perspective, what is the mechanism? What are the computations that go on in the nervous system that allow you to translate a thought into a physical movement. So a lot of the work that we're doing is investigating uh, behavior. Um, so we use, you know, experiments that, that involve computer tasks uh, where we cue people to get ready to move and then they execute a movement. And then we probe what's happening during that preparatory phase. So as people are getting ready to execute a movement, we can use a lot of different techniques to probe what's going on. And we'll focus a lot on the cortical spinal pathway. So this is the pathway between primary motor cortex in the brain and the muscles in the body. And we use a lot of our, our, a lot of our experiments focus on hand muscles just because these are easier to, to measure in the lab. Um, but we can also look at, at mu muscles in the leg and uh, you know, all over the, the face as well. Um, but we, we will have people do these tasks and repeat trials where they're preparing to move and then executing movements. And we can look at the excitability in this pathway between the brain and a muscle by using a non-invasive form of stimulation referred to as transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is where we take an electromagnetic coil. So we have a, a coil of wire and we run current through that wire. It's encased in plastic. So we kind of hold this coil over somebody's head. We administer a pulse of electricity through the, the coil. It produces a magnetic field that travels across the scalp and the skull and induces electrical current in the tissue in the cortex and can actually activate the cortical spinal cells, so the, the pyramidal cells that project down your cortical spinal pathway and induce a twitch in a muscle. So we can actually cause people to have these involuntary twitches. And then we can record the muscle activity using electromyography. So we use uh, surface recording of muscle activity um, and that measurement, uh, the measurement that we're, we're gathering, this twitch, tells us how excited that pathway is at a given moment in time. So we get a, a snapshot of the excitability in that pathway when someone's getting ready to move. So this is cool because while someone's in a state of sort of preparedness to, to get ready to act, we get a, a snapshot of where their excitability levels are. And we can look at this in a repeated manner across various behavioral conditions. We can also use this probe of cortical spinal excitability to sort of get a window into what's happening upstream. So we use this as sort of an output measurement, but we can, we can sort of assess when somebody's getting ready to move or when somebody's controlling a movement, um, what might be going on behind the scenes. We can also see what's happening on the side of the body that somebody's not using for the movement. So we can see what's happening on the contralateral side. 
and we can look at individual differences. We can see how different people prepare these movements and if there are differences in the excitability in this pathway while people are getting ready to move. So this is really cool because we, we have now, um, you know, this question that, that I think is super interesting is what's going on in the background? What's going on behind the curtain when somebody's not moving, when they're just thinking about moving and thinking about various actions that they could be making? And we can, we can probe that. We can look at that in the laboratory and we can study this. So this is what folks in the lab have been using the most. Um, unfortunately, uh, in order to get these types of measurements, we have to be with a human participant in the lab for extended periods of time, which just isn't feasible during COVID. So we've had a bit of a hiatus in, in uh, doing the, that type of data collection in the lab. But we have a lot of data that we acquired before the pandemic hit, and we're still in the process of analyzing some of these data sets. We also have collaborators around the world who use the similar approaches and we can actually, some of them are in places like New Zealand where we can start to pilot stuff um, using these approaches. Uh, so fortunately we have generous collaborators who are, who are happy to help us out in sort of turning our, our research program in new directions um, during this, this pandemic period. But anyway, getting back to your question, the other method that we've uh, kind of been using a lot in the lab now is, is MR spectroscopy or magnetic resonance spectroscopy. So this uses an MRI scanner and we put people into the MRI scanner and you use a standard MRI machine for this. There's nothing really too fancy about the MRI scanner, but instead of measuring anatomical characteristics or blood flow characteristics, which are very common, uh, commonly used measurements, we can measure the quantity of neurochemicals uh, in the brain. So we can actually look at what are referred to as metabolites. And the way we do this is we treat our, our MRI scanner like a spectrometer. So we can actually measure the amount of protons uh, in a given area in the brain um, that are, have a certain resonance frequency. So different molecules um, will actually have different fingerprints that show up in a spectrum based on how quickly the protons are, are precessing in, in the environment that we're measuring them. So we can use this tool to look at neurochemicals and GABA, as you said uh, in your introduction, is one of the, the principal chemicals that we're interested in um, because it's the, the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the human brain. And we think that uh, GABA is really important for modulating the excitability in the motor system, in particular when people are getting ready to execute movements um, and control their movements. And the computations for these inhibitory mechanisms are a bit of a mystery. Um, we know that there's a lot of inhibition in the motor system. We know that it's important, uh, but we don't know what it's doing. So this is really the, the main thrust of the lab right now, is trying to understand what, what is the role of inhibition in the motor system? What role does it play when people are getting ready to move? Is it simply that inhibition prevents people from moving until they really want to, and then you have a release of this inhibition and allows the movement to, be, um, to get out from the brain down to the muscles? Or is inhibition doing something a little bit more complicated? Is it sort of changing the gain on the motor system, increasing signal to noise, if you will? So mm -hmm. if you have, have a, a command that you want to send down to your muscles, but there's a lot of other commands that could be sent, when you apply a lot of inhibition to the motor system, does it quiet the whole field of play and allow that specific command to get out to the muscles and then allow that movement to be executed? So is it a signal to noise uh, adjuster um, rather than just a suppressor of output? So and computations, yeah, that we can explore. So if I'm understanding correctly, so it, it sounds like you guys, you guys think like that sort of the level of GABA Kind of floating around the, the nervous system may be involved in in whether someone is going to either say think about oh i want to move my hand right now versus whether that actually that hand movement actually is occurring yeah is that so, correct? yeah so that in, in general sense yes so i think um you know if somebody has a lot of this inhibitory neurotransmitter floating around in their nervous system they might actually have, uh, there, there's a couple reasons that that could be. One is it could be compensatory. So let's say you have a really excitable or ticklish cortical spinal pathway. So as soon as the, the premonition to, to make a movement gets into the primary motor cortex, you're more likely to execute that movement. You might need more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter to offset that. So you can think of how that might relate to certain pathologies where people have impulsive behaviors or impulsivity more generally. On the flip side, um, it could be that people who have more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter just have a more finely tuned motor system. So it's not necessarily that they inhibit the movements, but they can actually execute the movements more precisely. And maybe it's a mixture of these two things. So maybe it's that you need to offset the excitability a little bit, but also if you have more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter available to you, 
Um, you can actually do more precise movements or more accurate movements or just uh, execute movements in with greater precision, I guess, is a way to think about it. So, so yeah, so I think there, there are different alternatives to thinking about how inhibition might be important. Um, another sort of feature of inhibition outside the motor system that sort of informs the way that we think about this is if you look in the visual cortex or the auditory cortex or sensory, other sensory cortices, inhibition plays important roles in tuning or sharpening the tuning of, of representations. So what that means is um, if I told you to, or, to, to attend to a certain feature of a visual stimulus, so let's say I told you to pay attention to diagonal lines in a stimulus that go in one orientation but not the other, you could do that. You could use your attentional system to focus um, your attention on one feature of that stimulus. It's not really clear if the motor system has a similar sort of computation that depends on inhibition. But in the vision system, this seems to be very uh, dependent on GABA, on GABAergic mechanisms. So being able to, to sort of tune your attention uh, appropriately. And in the motor system, I think that could also be true. So when you're preparing to move, maybe you have to tune your attention to the type of movement or the precise movement that you want to execute. And inhibition is playing a similar, similar role. I wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned a little bit before the, the sort of individual variability, I guess, in, in sort of the muscle response, um, right? I'm curious, so with, with the subjects that you guys see that come into your lab, is there a lot of uh, variability as far as from one person to another, as far as how, how they react to a specific stimulus? And, and then I guess my sort of follow-up question to that is if so, um, are you guys sort of assessing like, uh, I guess their sort of stress, or I would even think like something like PTSD mm. would, you know, a condition like that would probably like increase sort of the starter response. Is that sort of, am I thinking along the right lines of that? that yeah, yeah. Sort of so I guess, um, so this is like a two part question. I guess the first point is um, it depends on the measure you're looking at, how variable, and also the, the sample that you're looking at, how variable people are in terms of just their simple reaction times and uh, you know the, the types of measurements that we're gathering in the lab. It ends up that people um, in the laboratory setting, when you have people doing these types of experimental paradigms, have pretty consistent and very reliable uh, measurements of, of reaction times. Um, especially when we're doing a, what we refer to as a delayed response task. So the example I told you earlier, where get ready to move your left index finger and now move, um, people will be very consistent in how they perform that behavior. And the reaction times are super quick, uh, especially when we look at just the muscle activity measured with our electromyography, the, the electrical recordings. So this means that we tell you to get ready to move, a stimulus shows up telling you to execute the movement, and around 150 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds after that stimulus shows up, the muscle is engaged. Um, the button press that you might be making or the way that we record when the, the completion of the movement is being made in the lab tends to be around 350 to 400 milliseconds. So the muscle activity precedes the, the actual completion of the movement by about 100 milliseconds. That being said, um, you know, across individuals, we'll see a range from you know, 150 milliseconds in terms of the EMG onset time, so the, the, the muscle activity onset, to anywhere up to like 350 to 450. So we get, you know, a couple hundred millisecond range of, this is in healthy young adults, um, so mostly college students that will test with this paradigm. But if we look in healthy older people, the variability explodes. You start to see a, a much bigger uh, range of behaviors. And then if you incorporate uh, now, you know, patient clinical populations, that variability increases as well. And this is just talking about individual subjects mean reaction times, um, which is often what, what they're represented as in an experiment. But we can also look at the variance within an individual and how variable they are from trial to trial and that sort of thing. It ends up that the variance of an individual and how variable they are in their reaction times um, is maybe even a more sensitive measure to individual differences than just looking at the mean of their reaction time. So we look at the shape of the reaction time distributions in our subjects and also, you know, these mean summary measures. Um, so these are all really important uh, ways to get a window into that individual subject, um, or those individual differences rather that we, we like to look at. Uh, but then turning to your other question, so was your question about the startle reflex more in relation to the stimulation that we're using um, as like producing a startle or when you talk about stress levels, are you talking about 
you know, when you just receive a stimulus, how likely you are to respond quickly versus slowly, depending on like a, um, I guess your, your preconditioned uh, state. The, the latter. The latter. Yeah. So, so I think in that case, um, there are differences. I don't know. I think the nature of the stimulus, to be honest, I, I haven't done much work with PTSD, um, but I think the nature of the stimulus probably matters. Uh, and if it taps into some circuit that is going to cause people to have a heightened level of stress, most of the stimuli that we're using in the laboratory are, you know, very um, bland, boring types of, of stimuli that people have to learn the association between the stimulus and, and motor responses. There's no um, sort of preconditioned state. But I would think that people who are in an experimental setting might react differently to just being in the laboratory. You know, some people might be more comfortable with it than others. Um, we do a lot of training with our participants, even though it's a very basic experiment, like a basic paradigm that we have them do. Um, we do a lot of training and a lot of sort of making sure that people are comfortable with all of the procedures that we use before we enter into our data collection. So I do think that different people start off from in sort of different levels of anxiety um, and different levels of stress. And I'm, I'm confident that that would influence these individual differences at some level. We haven't really probed that um, in our data to, to, to a great degree. Uh, but I will say that after training in the lab, a lot of times people will reach a state where they're able to go through these experiments fairly um, easily. And I do want to address the, the type of brain stimulation that we're using is very safe. Um, so this is uh, the type of transcranial magnetic stimulation that we're using is, is extremely safe. And we make sure that people are comfortable with it. And we screen them very carefully before they come into the lab. Um, so, so we try to get rid of anything that might be related to just anxiety about being in the experiment or about the procedures that we use uh, to look at these types of measures beforehand. Oftentimes, we will bring people in who have had an experience with the methods before um, in the past, just to make sure that they're comfortable with doing it and that we'll get the types of data that we're trying to get, because uh, it, can can, it can be challenging to get some of the, the types of data that we need to get in the lab. Right. So, so it's when you mention TMS, that's that's so interesting because being on on more like me being more kind of the clinical side of things, I for a few weeks actually uh, I was in Seattle. I was checking out um, like a TMS. It was like a TMS center, right? You know, and they were using that to treat people. I think mostly for depression. So is that is that sort of are there two? I I guess it's a completely different sort of utilization of that tool. Yeah. yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um so yeah, the way that it's used clinically is typically with in in depression or um in other psychiatric uh situations, they look at um or they use a, a method referred to as repetitive TMS where they deliver a train of TMS pulses. Um this is often over the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um where they're trying to target an area that might disrupt sort of ruminative thoughts or perseverative thoughts. Um, and going through repeated administration of this repetitive TMS protocol often does benefit these patients. Uh, there's, again, individual differences play a huge role in this. And there's a lot of research going on still trying to understand how this is effective. Because I think even though it's FDA approved for the treatment of these conditions, the mechanisms are still somewhat of a mystery. But repetitive TMS, um, when you're using these patterns of stimulation, they, they can have lasting effects um, anywhere from hours to potentially days and longer, depending on the protocol. Um, so you can stimulate at different frequencies. Uh, now there's you know, TMS machines that use different pulse waveforms and shapes and things. And there's new tech, newer technologies that are coming out, uh, which are really exciting, that can actually modulate local fields in a different manner. But I think um, the way that we use the, the TMS uh, protocol in our lab is to deliver individual pulses of TMS and try to drive this cortical spinal output uh, pathways. In fact, in the clinic, they'll try to use this approach to tailor the level of stimulation to an individual um, before they do the repetitive TMS. So they actually will do this procedure to see what the intensity is that they might need. Um, this is on its own uh, a pretty complicated um, procedure to do just because there are, it's not clear to me at least that setting the intensity from motor cortex really translates well to prefrontal regions for targeting for, for therapeutic benefit, but there's a lot of research on this. Um, 
but in any case, what, what we're doing is we're only targeting the motor system uh, with these individual pulses. And there's no evidence to suggest that there's lasting effects from the types of protocols that we use, where you're just delivering single pulse every four seconds or so. The repetitive protocols tend to be faster than one hertz or one pulse per second, and oftentimes can be very quick. So up to like pulses or bursts of 50 hertz, uh, where you have patterns that actually sound like where you have these you know train brief trains of pulses with a short break and brief trains of pulses with a short break so we have the capacity to do that in my lab and you know future work will sort of explore how modulation of motor cortex might actually influence the measurements that we're gathering including the neurochemical measurements um, but for now we're really focusing on measuring these ex the excitability of this pathway in different behavioral states and trying to probe that right well wh what can you tell me about sort of the level of GABA uh, in the brain what what does that tell you in regards to someone's motor response like and and I guess also uh, another part to that question is do, can you do you feel like that you can accurately predict how someone would do on like one of these motor response tasks, if you know kind of what the the, the MR spectroscopy is saying as far as their GABA, uh, GABA levels? Both great questions. Yeah, so, um, so the first one, so I've published a bit of work looking at individual differences in, in GABA content. Um, first showing that this measure is indeed reliable across weeks. So, uh, individual differences in how much GABA there is in different parts of the brain um, seems to be very reliable, uh, especially in the cortex, um, and especially in motor cortex. And there's a lot of work suggesting that people who have more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter in their primary motor cortex um, might actually be um, faster to execute a movement. But the, the issue here is that we found in our study when we did this, um, we found that people who were more sensitive to the TMS, so when we delivered a TMS pulse at one intensity, we saw a twitch in the muscle, and then we increased the intensity a little bit, and we get a slightly bigger twitch. You can look at this increase in the twitch amplitude, so how big that twitch is, and that the, the slope of that increase, so whether somebody is more sensitive to the increase in the, the TMS intensity or not, is correlated pretty nicely with their GABA content. So how much GABA somebody has in their motor cortex ends up that people who have more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter end up having a, a more excitable cortical spinal pathway. So a way to think about this is if you, again, have a really ticklish output for your motor system. So here we're hijacking that pathway going down from the brain to the muscle. If you have a really ticklish cortical spinal pathway and you, when you get TMS, you have a bigger twitch in your hand, you might need more of this inhibitory neurotransmitter to offset that. So you might have to have a greater sort of reserve of, of this GABAergic inhibition uh, available to you um, to, to offset that. One thing I didn't say about MR spectroscopy, which I think is important to point out, is this is a measurement that you can't really get dynamic changes in the molecule over time. So the individual differences that we're seeing from one day to another day a few weeks later in our data, um, those are reliable, but they take about eight minutes to get a single measurement. And we also can't say where the GABA is in the brain. It's total amount of this molecule in, in a given region of, of brain tissue. And the region of brain tissue that we're measuring from is on the order of about three centimeters on each face. So it's a, a cube um, that we're measuring and it's a big cube. So it's not really specific to a tiny brain area. This is a larger brain region that we're measuring. So we don't know if the GABA is vesicular GABA. So we don't know if it's you know, packaged up and ready for synaptic release. We don't know if this molecule is um, bound to a certain receptor. We don't know if this molecule is in the astrocytes or in the, the primary neurons, um, the primary cells. So, so we, we are kind of taking this, this whole composite measure of how much of this molecule exists and trying to relate it to these other measures that are also composites. So when we deliver TMS, this is a summation of all the excitatory and inhibitory influences in the pathway down to the muscle. So, so we can't be very, very precise with these techniques. The advantage of using these techniques actually is that we can be sensitive to, um, to, to what's going on in a behavioral state at a given moment in time with the TMS. And then also we have real good sensitivity to individual differences with the molecules, as I was saying. So, so coming back to the question, um, so I do think that 
how excitable somebody's pathway is between the brain and the muscle relates to how much of this inhibitory neurotransmitter is available. So that's one thing that we've shown. Other people have shown that how much of that inhibitory neurotransmitter is available in motor cortex can actually relate to how they perform in terms of motor sequence learning. So um, when you learn a sequence of, of finger presses, say on a keyboard, um, how you learn that seems to depend at least in some part on how much of this inhibitory neurotransmitter is available in the contralateral motor cortex. Also, if you deliver protocols of stimulation that can actually modulate how much of that inhibitory neurotransmitter is available in motor cortex, the changes in the inhibitory neurotransmitter also scale with changes in motor learning. So people have used approaches including TMS, but also TDCS, um, direct current stimulation, which is something that my lab doesn't use. Um, they've shown that when you modulate the amount of inhibitory neurotransmitter available, that this then changes how people perform these motor, motor sequence learning tasks. So it seems like for one, uh, the stuff from my lab shows that excitability in the cortical spinal pathway relates in a way to how much of, of this molecule is available. And then from other labs, how you learn a motor sequence task relates to how much of this inhibitory neurotransmitter is available. Right. So that was the first part of your question. The second part of your question, or the second question you asked, um, remind me, was... Um, let's see. Sorry. So... Um... I'm forgetting right now. Um, we, it was a good we, question. I uh, know. I completely. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure. It might come back to me, but I actually just thought of another question as you were as you were sort of talking about um, as you were talking about GABA. I was wondering, um, have there been experiments done where they're sort of modulating the levels of GABA, say with with an exogenous substance, yeah. like I'm trying to think of what, you know, what they could use. Cause like the first thing that comes to my mind when I remember learning about, uh, when I took a psycho psychoactive drugs class at the U of O, you know, they were talking about alcohol being, you know, something that greatly yeah. increases GABA, but then I'm thinking, you know, it also has a lot of effects on other transmitters. So is there, is there a substance that is used in these kind of experiments to like modulate the levels of GABA and then examine how the motor response is different? So there are GABA agonists and GABA antagonists that are fairly specific. So people have done things like prescribe diazepam and, and other drugs that will actually modulate GABA. Um, and the problem with, with any of these pharmacological manipulations is that they're not specific to the motor system. Um, so this, this is tricky because if you want to have a specific influence on, on a particular brain area um, and you're giving pharmacological challenges, you're gonna be influencing a whole range of different mechanisms. So one of the things that people are, are kind of moving towards, and there's some really nice work on this that's emerging, is using the, the stimulation itself in the repetitive trains that I talked about earlier, so these repetitive protocols, to have more localized effects on the influence of inhibitory mechanisms or the release of, of GABA, for example. Um, and there are different protocols in the motor system that seem to have long-term potentiation type effects or long-term depression type, depressive types, types of effects, um, depending on the stimulation patterns that you use. So uh, this is something that's still being explored um, in terms of trying to have a, a very specific effect on the motor system. And a lot of work that is trying to understand the effects of repetitive stimulation outside the motor system, so in the context of the psychiatric disorders that we talked about, they will use the motor system as um, a probe to better understand what these mechanisms are because we can get the readout of excitability from the cortical spinal pathway. Whereas if you are trying to influence these other areas, there's not as clean a readout of, um, of the system, I think, in humans at least. So, so this is another, um, another reason I think the motor system is super important to be investigating in the laboratory is we can get this pretty direct readout in terms of cortical spinal excitability and modulation of other, other markers of, of cortical spinal uh, changes, um, as well as actually cortical modulation. So one of the things that you can do with transcranial magnetic stimulation um, is you can have somebody contracting a muscle and maintaining a contraction and then if you deliver the TMS pulse um, while you're recording from the muscle that's being contracted, 
you will see what's referred to as the motor evoke potential, so that initial twitch. But after that twitch, you get a silent period in the muscle response. And that silent period in the, tr in the EMG trace, in the electromyographic trace, is known to been, be linked to both spinal and cortical inhibitory influences. So you have very specific, when you give a GABA antagonist or a GABA agonist, for example, you can influence the duration of that silent period in a very precise manner. And moreover, um, from studies in clinical populations, if you record directly from the spinal cord uh, in these populations, so you can actually put an electrode invasively into the spinal cord, you can link that silent period to specific spinal mechanisms at the early portion of the silent period. And the latter portion of the silent period seems to be related to intracortical inhibitory influences. Um, so inside the motor cortex, there are these neurons that are um, locally inhibitory. And when you actually look at the silent period duration, you can actually link that back to, to these specific circuits within motor cortex. So, so we can use this TMS probe in a lot of different ways in the motor system that you can't use it outside the motor system, um, which is really nice. And, and I think this is uh, the utility of this approach is, I think, maybe not fully appreciated in, in other realms, um, but in certain clinical populations, it, it has been used to a uh, great extent to try to understand what's going on. So in stroke patients, for example, and in the case of Parkinsonism and other movement disorders, um, they've used these types of approaches for, for decades now to try to understand what's happening uh, in, these, in these pathways. Um, but in the context of linking it back to neurochemical concentrations and trying to understand the neurochemistry of it, this is sort of a, a newer direction for the field. And then, again, putting it in the context of behavior and having it in the context of the types of behavioral tasks that we use in my lab, that is completely novel. So trying to have people in these different behavioral states and getting a window into the computations that inhibition is affording, that is, um, I think, where, where, we're he where we're heading in the future. So that's really great. Awesome. And I wanted to transition a little and actually ask you a question that, that you actually posed to me in, when we were kind of corresponding about this via email before we uh, started recording. Um, and you said, uh, so we don't act on every thought we have, so what factors determine whether we act on a thought? And you were saying that that question poses a lot of phys uh, philosophical implications. Um, yeah. It seems somewhat tractable uh, uh, to the motor system. So I'm wondering, kind of in addition to, to what we talked about with maybe the uh, neurotransmitter levels, what, what other factors are at play when it comes to determining whether that thought is actually going to lead to a observable behavior, if you will? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is what I think is so cool about this area of study. And there is a lot of work happening in non-human primates and rodents um, looking at these types of questions. So, um, you know, what are the, the computations of the motor system that lead to motor output? And in, in the past, there's been this hypothesis that really somewhere in the motor system, there's a gate. So, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, um, where when you have a bunch of affordances in your environment, so an affordance just being sort of the, the opportunity to act based on what is available to you. Um, and at any given moment, you know, you could do anything. Like right now, Toby, you could be reaching behind you to grab one of those books off your shelf, or you could be typing on your computer, but instead you're sitting here listening uh, to what, what I'm saying. And, and I think that the, the options of various motor plans are infinite. And this gets back down to um, actually the, the history, if you want to think about motor control, you know, getting down to the, like the degrees of freedom problem too. So any given movement you could achieve with an infinite number of degrees of freedom, but somehow the, the nervous system has solved this. The nervous system has sort of figured out, um, you know, what, what are the optimal or semi-optimal ways to solve this problem? So how does that play out in the motor system? Well, um, what is, is there a gate? Is there a gate that opens up and allows a thought to then be translated into an action? Uh, and then, if there is a gate, where is it in the nervous system? So a long time ago, people thought, oh, the basal ganglia to the thalamus, um, this is the gate that opens up and allows action plans to be executed. And when you close this gate, um, this is sort of the way to prevent those movements from being executed. Um, it's not really clear that, that that's true. Uh, I mean, there's, there's some evidence to, to suggest that the basal ganglia certainly play an important role in modulating whether motor output is achieved or not. Um, but I think, the, the underlying computations for selection, for selection of a given action, 
um, we still don't really understand. We know that in the cortex, there are lots of different representations. There's a somatotopy of the body in cortex where you get a general sort of breakdown of different body parts represented across primary motor cortex. And the somatotopy seems to be upheld throughout basal ganglia circuits that return back to the cortex. So you have these loops that go from the cortex down through the basal ganglia and back up to the cortex. Um, and that there's this preservation of the somatotopic map. But then you also have sort of directional tuning in motor cortex, meaning like the direction that a movement is being executed in seems to be uh, represented by a population of neurons and selectively represented by this certain population of neurons. So when you have a specific action plan in mind, um, how does this one cluster or network of, of brain areas that's active now segregate itself from all these surrounding areas? And I think that this is the one of the keys to the role of inhibition is understanding that computation because somewhere inhibition is is sort of helping elevate that representation that's associated with the selected response, the movement that you want to make um, from those other possible actions that you might be entertaining. So yeah, so I think I'm not answering your question because we don't know this, but there are computations in the motor system that have to be playing out to achieve this, this goal. And I think the question is still a bit rhetorical, but I think it is tractable. As I said, I think that by studying people and animals in various behavioral states and looking at how these components communicate to one another and what the underlying sort of computations are that are playing out, we can understand why it is when we have a sort of limitless number of possible movements to make that we're choosing one movement. Um, whether or not that gets at these philosophical questions of like free will and whether or not the, the selection of these actions um, is really sort of internally determined or externally determined or however you want to think about this, um, I don't know if we'll get there, but it's certainly the case, I will say this, it's certainly the case that whatever this mechanism is, is probably under the over, uh, oversight of frontal regions in the brain, communicating with other areas in the brain, and trying to, to figure out what is the behaviorally relevant content that's in our environments. Um, but even if we have decided that there's something that's relevant to us in our environment, and we know that it's relevant to us, um, and that we should be acting on it, getting that behavior to manifest and actually occur in our motor system is a whole separate set of problems. And that's sort of where I'm coming at this, is trying to understand what, what, how those problems are solved. Um, because I think if we can address that in the motor system, that gives us a lot more leverage to get at these other, other questions about higher cognitive function and you know, just how do, how do people solve problems? How do they get at this? Um, and then also trying to understand disordered motor function as well. Like the, the, right. It, it makes me think, honestly, like about like elite athletes, right? Do, do you have any sort of like, I don't know if you've seen any, any research on athletes before in regards to kind of what we're talking about, or just maybe some of your hypotheses as far as like, you know, you take a world-class you know, soccer player who is doing all of these million actions, you know, faster than we can even like notice them doing it. Right. Um, and they're not probably consciously like thinking about this. They're just like, they have to me that that's like an excellently tuned motor system, I guess. Um, what, what would you sort of suppose is going on there from, from everything that you know about the motor system and, and how, how would that differ from an average subject? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think, um, you know, I've given a little bit of thought to this. It's not, it's not really the focus of, of, of our work, but I think my postdoc was down in uh, a laboratory at UC Berkeley um, under Richard Irie, um, who's a, an expert in cerebellar function. And I think the motor system is set up with sort of these two, two pieces, I would say. One that is maybe more related to our volitional control of our everyday movements, which are these cortical basal ganglia circuits that I described, where people are um, really aware of the actions that they're making. I think that um, there, there's a suggestion that the basal ganglia are important for habit formation as well. But I think even with habits, when we're executing the movements associated with our habits, we're kind of aware of what's happening um, oftentimes. And then there's sort of the, the cerebellar contribution to the motor system, which I think of as being much more implicit um, 
And I think this is the, the, the cerebellum definitely plays a role in non-motor functions as well. Um, you know, there's, there's some great work from Maeve King, uh, who's in, in the ivory lab now, um, and others looking at these, the array of various non-motor functions in the cerebellum. Um, but I think the, the cerebellum is really um, important for making these tiny corrections uh, in your behaviors and adjusting these things and fine tuning them and maybe helping you attain those levels of proficiency that are going to bring you to the next level. And of course, there's got to be innate characteristics of the motor system itself in terms of fitness and things like this that play into, you know, when you become an expert athlete or, um, you know, super high performing individual in any sport. Um, but one of the things that I think is really important is how those uh, motor plans get laid down and then how they're practiced and re sort of capitulated over and over and over again in the motor system to the point where you've built up the level of expertise to become, you know, to perform the highest possible level that you can. So I think, um, you know, there's, there are, um, I'm blanking on her name. So there, there's like a dart player named uh, Fallon, uh, what's her name? Uh, I'm blanking on it. But anyway, like this is an example that that I think is really cool is that, you know, she can, she can throw her darts with like incredible accuracy. Um, and she's clearly practiced this quite a bit, but she's competing against other folks at her level who have also practiced this probably just as much as she has, except that somewhere in her nervous system and her motor system, um, she is able to attain a higher level of precision. And whether or not that's playing in at this level of the cerebellum or the basal ganglia, it's hard to say, um, or in the cortex. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of tricky to say, but I think the one thing I will say is that there is a, an interaction, I think, between cerebellar mediated and basal ganglia mediated um, inputs to motor cortex, which is what has to happen before those motor commands get sent out to the spinal cord. I mean, there are direct projections down the spinal cord from, from some of these areas, but I think the cortex has to be engaged in order for these movements to be executed cleanly, at least in humans. Um, and I think that this, a lot of this happens maybe at the level of the thalamus feeding up into the cortex, uh, where you have this sort of balance between what is under our volitional control when we're actually thinking about our movements versus when we're kind of in that Zen state and not really focusing on everything that we're doing uh, at an infinite level of granularity. And the cerebellum is maybe helping out more with that. The cerebellum also is really important for integrating sensory information and making sure that the behavioral output or the feedback that we're getting from our environments matches what we actually predicted would happen. So um, cerebellum is really important for doing this type of comparison between predicted sensory feedback and actual sensory feedback. Um, and this plays a huge role in how we control our motor systems. So it could just be that a lot of these experts um, who perform really well at these motor tasks make very accurate predictions about what's going to happen in the world. And when they behave, those predictions are fulfilled. And this has really helped them attain a, a good level of proficiency. And they've become more and more attuned to when there's error uh, in the world based on what they're doing. And maybe their cerebellums are really um, sensitive to those types of tiny errors that the rest of us uh, just aren't, right? So when we make these errors, we just, our brains are just insensitive to them because the tolerance for error is greater. Whereas in these people who attain a high level of expertise, they have a, a lower tolerance for error so they can correct these movements and perform at a higher level of proficiency. Very long-winded answer to your question. No, no, very interesting. Um, how, how about the, the mirror neuron system and how much that impacts all of this? Yeah, it's a great question too. So. You know, I, I actually, being a motor neuroscientist, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about mirror neurons. I think that they're interesting. Um, I think that they certainly have a lot to do with social behavior, probably in, in different social contexts, and maybe are abnormal in various disordered states. Uh, you know, if we think about people who suffer from, um, from autism or, or, you know, or fall on the spectrum and, and maybe have difficulty representing uh, the behaviors of other people, that might be um, maybe the most important role for this mirror neuron system, in my opinion. But you know, I have to accept I'm I'm pretty ignorant in terms of how where that field is sort of gone. Um, I do think that learning from other people's motor errors is possible, and whether or not that's something that can be, happen within cortical basal ganglia circuits or cerebellar circuits, I don't know. Um, yeah. I would guess maybe more in cortical basal ganglia circuits, people can internally represent these things better. But um, 
in terms of like internal simulation and thinking about how our motor plans might be manifest in others, I think that's a, a really exciting direction to be going. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if anyone's really looking at this in relation to the types of neurochemical measurements that we gather. Um, could be a really interesting direction to go. But yeah, honestly, the, the time that I think about that most is when I'm working with my daughter and, and doing parallel play. So she's four years old and we'll sit next to one another. And especially now uh, that she's home more often, we, we do a lot of these activities where we'll be doing something that's challenging for her. And I'll try to show her by doing it myself and see how much she can gather from that um, and try to help her understand how to overcome these challenges. And over the course of development, I'm sure the mirror neuron system is, is super important for so many things to develop skills. But at the same time, it's impressive to me like what she, she can't take away from just simulating what I'm doing or trying to understand what I'm doing and she just has to do it herself and learn from her own errors. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an open, interesting question and I'm the wrong person to sort of speak to it, so. Yeah, it, it, it is just interesting to think about, I guess, like, you know, you could watch, if you don't, if you've never ridden a bike before, and it doesn't matter how much of the, the Tour de France you watch, like, it, you're still not gonna be able to ride a bike, right? Yeah, but at the same time, you might have an appreciation of the mechanics, you know, where to position your body on the device, and you might even have an intuition about, um, you know, if I'm in this situation, what would be the right thing to do with my body? Um, so one, one example actually I, I can give from personal experience is, you know, I, I love to surf. Um, it's one of my favorite hobbies. And one of the things that was really challenging for me was watching people catch waves and like seeing them do it and really understanding all the mechanics that were required to do it, but just not being able to do it myself. And I think this is where that sensory feedback really is important. So I think you, you could have a perfectly working mirror neuron system that might be able to internally represent what other people are doing, but you really need that sensory information, I think, um, from your first person's like, subjective experience to be able to do some of these motor skills. And I think this is maybe particularly important for cerebellar mediated learning, uh, but that's just me speculating. Awesome. Well, Ian, uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show, um, but... I wanted to ask you kind of the, the last question I had for you was, I'm curious, you know, with, I guess, as you sort of look at, you know, the next five, 10, 20 years, however much longer you're planning on, on being in research, uh, where do you, where would you ideally like to, because it sounds like there's, there's all of these sort of unanswered questions still about the motor system. And I'm, I'm just wondering where you would like to eventually get to and what what sort of unsolved mysteries you hope to to sort of unravel yeah thanks for that question toby um well i first of all this went by really fast I, and i know i've been talking a lot so i hope that <laughs> no it went fast for me as well um yeah so i think my ideal so i i do hope to to stay in research for decades um because i think like i said there's just so many cool directions to take take this type of research. Um, where I hope to see it go is in terms of improving people's performance and, and their well-being um, across the board. So not just clinical populations, but also healthy people and trying to understand um, better what the computations are in the motor system and using that information to really get out, get down to very precise treatments for disorders. So for example, if, if we see that inhibition in the motor system is modulating the gain in the motor system, um, you know, where is this happening in the nervous system? Can we actually very precisely, uh, so coming at it from like a precision medicine perspective, can we precisely modulate the node in the system where that adjustment is occurring and do it in a manner that doesn't have side effects, it doesn't impact their other domains of function? And can this be done in movement disorders like Parkinson's disease? Um, can it be beneficial to patients recovering from stroke? Can it help people with dystonia? Um, you know, other types of movement disorders, but then getting beyond that and looking at healthy aging, for example. So as people get older, it seems like their nervous systems get more noisy, <laughs> more broadly speaking, and maybe figuring out a way to modulate that noise in the motor system um, and, and so in, in healthy aging, there are motor changes that happen um, and they can be debilitating and they can be, you know, detrimental to people's quality of life, to understanding 
um, how they should be able to function even into you know very late uh, age. And by selectively modulating the noise system in the motor system and understanding how to change gain in the motor system, maybe we can translate this to other systems as well. And this could be beneficial to you know non-motor function in aging as well that gets impaired, including cognitive processes, maybe even in Alzheimer's patient populations, that type of thing. Um, but then talking about healthy young people, you know, maybe putting yourself in a certain motor state or getting yourself into a, a state of, 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 um, of readiness of some kind could help you with motor learning, help people attain a better level of performance. Um, this could have benefits across the board, not just in athletics, but you know, it might actually translate again to non-motor function, to cognitive processing and, and helping people sort of overcome various types of obstacles. And the critical element to all of this is that um, we could do this in a very selective manner in the motor system, study it, using the motor system as a model, and then try to see if it generalizes. And if those principles generalize from the motor system, then I think you can actually apply these selective forms of, of modulation to, to pretty much anything in the nervous system. Um, the reason I think the motor system might be good for that, evolutionarily, I think the motor system is maybe the most primitive part of the nervous system, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. And I think that there's a lot of scaffolding built on top of the motor system. So a lot of our higher cognitive functions, maybe even some of the limbic functions um, and even sensory systems probably have recapitulations of the motor system or some form of a modification on, on motor system functions. So if we understand what's going on in these primitive structures and in sort of the, the basic functions of the motor system, it might give us a lot of leverage to better understand other parts of the brain and the nervous system. So that's where I hope this will go. Um, maybe not you know, in, in my career, but Beyond that, I think we'll be able to, to learn more about the nervous system and maybe have some far-reaching impacts on the quality of life for, for most people. Um, so it's not just a, I mean, it's an interesting basic science question. I, I think that that's what really motivates me to do this research is, uh, I think it's philosophically interesting. I think it's really exciting to be studying these mechanisms and trying to think about how chemistry and physiology and all these things like link together. Um, but down the line, I think there could be some real benefits to humanity. So yeah, that's all a lot of motivation for doing this type of work. Awesome. Girl, great, uh, great way to wrap it up. Um, Ian, if, uh, if other people were really interested in our discussion and wanted to find out more about your work, more about your lab's work, uh, where would you direct them to? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, um, probably to the lab website. So it's greenhouselab.uorgan.edu. Um, so that's our, our primary place where we share all of our information and what we're up to. Um, but also feel free to email me. Uh, my email address is img at uorgan.edu. Um, and also please read our papers, take a look at what we're up to. Um, we've got some new, newer stuff coming out that is related to the stuff that I've just been talking about. So um, yeah, we'll see where things go over the next four or five years. I'm hoping that this pandemic goes away so that we can get back into the saddle and continue doing the work that we've been doing. Right. Well, awesome. Um, and for those listeners who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that you can find audio podcasts. Um, also go ahead and check out our new website, uh, roscoeswetsuitpodcast.com, where you can find uh, all of this information at and links to everything. All right, uh, Ian, again, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really had a good discussion. Yeah, this was great. All right.